So this morning, um, beginning starting a new two-week series on wealth and wielding it well. And the, the thing we're going to be talking about this morning is, is wealth is uh, don't chase it, choose it, choose what it means for us. And I want to set you at ease that we are not talking about wealth this morning because uh, the church needs money. If you look in the bulletin, the church is almost meeting its budget and well above expenses, so it's not that. It's not because we have some large capital campaign or building that we're trying to build. It's because as Christians, we need to be reminded, we need to remind one another that uh, we don't handle money the way the world around us does. We handle money differently, or at least we should. That the way we handle our money is the way that we are disciples, the way that we grow as disciples of Jesus, but also the way that we honor him uh, with our lives. So the difficult thing is the culture around us bombards us with different ideas about money, with sinful ideas, with self-serving ideas, with um, dangerous ideas even. Not only that, it plays on our selfishness, it plays on our greed, it plays on our fear, and the hard thing for me is that the culture around us, uh, especially uh, advertisers, they play on this because it's profitable for them. It's how they make more money. Convincing us that we need that next new thing, that the thing that we had that was working just fine yesterday is no longer good enough and we need the better one. I fall for it all the time. I can't tell you how many times I'll be walking through life or looking through a magazine and see something I never knew that I needed. And at that moment, my life changes. And I have to just have that next thing that I was just fine without 20 seconds ago and now I have to have it. I fall for it all the time. Not only that, not only do we have the culture around us that is trying to get us to look at money the world's way, we have this internal voice, this sinful voice inside of us that keeps confusing our wants and our needs, blurring that line between I need that or is it that I just want that? And we have this internal voice in us that is fearful. Will I have enough if I don't keep this? What if something bad happens next week, next month, next year? How am I going to pay for that? How am I going to work that out? Maybe I, maybe I can't actually be generous with it. Maybe I need to keep this closer to me. Maybe I need to have a bit more, actually, because I'm afraid of what might happen. The thing is, we are well-trained consumers. I mean, and I'm, hopefully I don't get these things wrong, but in the early 1900s, when the manufacturing, when modernity happened and, and um, people learned to manufacture things so well, um, they realized that we are able to produce way more than people need. We can supply what people need. I remember hearing a story about shoes. The people were saying, like, we can, you know, at, uh, 100 years ago, people maybe had like one or two pair of shoes, maybe two, and they would just use those shoes, and they were just fine. But when they realized that we've produced enough shoe, or we can produce in a year enough shoe for every person, we have to create a need somehow so that people will keep buying shoes or we'll go out of business. So not only has that been that way for uh, a century now, but think about what it's like now as our kids grow up. Or I think about what it was like when I grew up, watching Saturday morning cartoons 
And all the commercials were perfectly timed to tell me about all the toys, all the things that I needed. And I would just go to my mom. Tell this is what I need, mom. This is what I need this week. This is what I need. Which is funny because even that dates me. Saturday morning cartoons, right? Our kids have no concept of that. They just turn on Netflix and watch the cartoon they want to watch right now. Tracy was visiting her uh, dad in Arkansas, and he doesn't have Netflix. He just has old-fashioned cable TV, right? And, um, and Shalem came running into the room to Tracy and said, Mom, Mom, you have to come quick and see this thing that I want because it's only on TV and it's going to be off in a second. Because <laughs> we don't have advertisements on Netflix. So we are trained from the time we're about this big, this big, to be consumers, to constantly consume, to constantly need more, to constantly want more. But it's not new. This desire for more and more is not new. As I was studying and I was, I was remembering this phrase, when someone asked someone, um, if, how much do you need? And the famous quote was just a little bit more. Does anybody know who that quote comes from? John D. Rockefeller. Standard Oil, from which companies, when they antitrust laws, they spun out like Chevron and all the major oil companies today. At, in the early 1900s, Standard Oil was the largest oil refinery like in the world. Uh, John Rockefeller was the first billionaire in the U.S. Oh no, someone's hurt. Um, that he, like the, one of the first billionaires, and when they asked him how much is enough, his famous quote was, just a little bit more. And how we live life that way. I, I regularly uh, wrestle with wealth, myself. Wrestle with how do I wield it well? How do I use it well? How do I use money in a way that honors God? When, I was, um, when Tracy and I were in Vancouver and I was a seminary student and we were living on student loans and her um, non-profit organization salary. <laughs> I didn't worry about it much. We were just barely getting by and, and maybe even a bit sinful uh, in my self-righteousness because we felt so poor. But we never went hungry. I didn't lose any weight. I had plenty of clothes to wear. I never had to worry about my health care. I was still filthy, stinking rich. But relative to everyone else, I was, we were poor. Not poor. We had less money. I shouldn't say poor. I don't want, to, don't want to use that word. We had less money than others. And I didn't wrestle with this question. But then when we moved here, and I, got, uh, and I was called here and started receiving a normal uh, paycheck, I started asking more questions. How do we honor God with our money, with the way that we spend it? How should we spend it? How much should we share? How much should we save? What about the disparity between us? Even disparity between us and this room. We have some Christian brothers and sisters in our church family who barely get by on social assistance. And we have some people in our church who have houses here and houses in other parts of the world. How do we work through that disparity? You know, sometimes I see people uh, with less money, and I've felt this myself, uh, resent people who, who worked hard and just ended up with more. And how we can resent people for that, or we can judge people, how easy it is for us to judge people. 
who seem like they have more money. Even if they totally, even if they just legitimately made that through a really great career and hard work, how we can judge people because of it. Or what about when people look at us? We have brothers and sisters in, for example, Sudan right now. And they are going through a famine. And they hear about us in North America. And they say, how can they not care about us? They have food, so much food, how can they not care about us? How do we work through about giving to people who have less than us, about sharing with each other? I suspect maybe some of you have similar questions. You wrestle with these things. How do we honor God with our money? How much should we spend? How much should we share? How much should we save? We can find our help in the Word of God. This morning we're we'll going to be looking at 1 Timothy. And I'm going to, I'm going to read it from the, the pulpit here just to read the Word. If you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Or if you want to, it's in the bulletin here, um, just the passage that we're going to be reading. This is from Paul's letter to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus, which is in modern-day uh, Asia Minor, Turkey area. And um, he, uh, this church is difficult. There's been some, some false teaching going on, and Paul is encouraging Timothy, who, as we read the letter, sounds like he's a young pastor. And Paul has been his mentor. And so Paul writes to him, and this is at the end of the letter, and so these are sort of his final words. So if you would read with me, it says, or Paul says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a mean to financial gain. So we can kind of get a window into what's happening. There's false teachers, and it sounds like they're using their teaching to make a living. They're using it to say, Here, here's the truth. If you want more of it, you're going to have to pay me. So then Paul starts talking about money with Timothy after that. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, at least no material thing. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and, tra- and, and, and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men and women, for that matter, into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Hey, Rick. What is that buzz? I hear it again. Oh, now it stopped. Okay. Got it. Um, but Sorry, I distracted. <laughs> um, faith pierced themselves with many griefs. Okay, so we're at uh, verse 11 here. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were, uh, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, 
and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen nor can see. To him be honor and might forever. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is sorry, take hold of the life that is truly life. So we're going to focus this morning uh, on the bolded part in your insert verses 6 to 10. But I want you to get a sense for everything that Paul was saying there. The point that we have here is that craving wealth is hazardous to our health. Craving wealth is hazardous to our health. Say that one time. Craving wealth is hazardous to our health. And what Paul's talking about here is this desire to get rich. It leads to disaster. Not to say that wealth, for example, is the issue. There are people I know who are faithful. They are wealthy and they are faithful. They use their money and they honor God with it. So it's not the wealth itself. It's the desire, this craving to be rich. We're going to get more into that. So let's look together at verse 9. So Paul's talking about people who want to get rich. And it's specific to people who want, who are craving this, this desire to be rich. I don't think that Paul's talking about people who want to work hard. People who love what they do. Or who are a gifted craftsperson. Or they're just amazing with numbers. Or they love business. They love building things and, and providing needs for people. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Or there's, I don't think that Paul's talking about making a living about working, paying bills, sending your kids to the university, those sort of things. I don't think Paul's talking about that. And there's some people who are, who are wealthy because they are exceptional. Think about musicians. A musician, a musician who just loves to play and sing. And they grow up doing it and they do it for free and then one day they, somebody finds their music on YouTube and next thing you know, like it's shared with millions of people and they become a millionaire. Like they're rich and they just love music and singing. Not because they were trying to get rich. Now there are some who do that and their whole goal is to get rich. They, that's, that's not what we're talking about. But there are some people who just love what they do. And there are just some people who are fortunate. I, have to, I think about this. I think about um, uh, some of my family are, are wealthy and and. And I've had to work through it because I have this unrealistic, this sinful and um, irrational resentment. Like, man, they have so much. That's not right. I should get some of that. But why? Um, and so some people are just fortunate. Like maybe their parents or their grandparents worked really hard and they just hand them this fortune. So Paul is talking about people with a specific desire to get rich this craving to be rich. He says it leads, uh, they fall into all kinds of temptations. When our desire is to be rich, we fall into all kinds of temptations. Sometimes, I mean, these are the extreme ones, sometimes people will cheat. If they want to get rich, they will cheat. They will break laws. They will cheat people, maybe even people they care about, to gain more money. Some people will steal. 
They will just outright take it from people if they want to be rich. But then there's also more subtle things too that people will do to get rich. Some people will work really hard and then hoard their money, hoard the fruits of their labor rather than share with people who need it. Sometimes people will compromise. So they won't outright steal, but at the same time they might, if someone made a mistake and gave them too much, they wouldn't mention it. They would just keep that. Sometimes people will idolize money, which is more of a spiritual thing than a practical thing. Money will become their God, and that's dangerous. It can also lead into a trap. And I don't know if you've seen a fish trap. Imagine a cylinder with a narrow end that necks down inside this cylinder. So the fish can swim in easily, but they can't find their way back out. Desiring to be rich is like that. You start desiring, maybe things start working out, and maybe you become rich. And you get all sorts of trouble, all sorts of problems. I was reading some articles, some testimonies of people who've won lottery tickets. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, because most people think, oh, I'd love to win the lottery. Man, all that money. What about the next step when you have all that money and everybody knows that you have it and everybody expects you to give them some and expects you to give some to them? I was reading these testimonies of people like just down the line, people who categorically said, I wish I had never, I wish I had torn up that ticket when I found that I won. Most people, when they win those lottery, those big financial sums, wish they had never won. They wish they could go back and undo it. That's what happens. Sometimes wealth can be a trap like that. You might just get what you wish for. And you end up with no money, no friends, and utterly destroyed. Another thing, too, is uh, at least all kinds of foolish and harmful desires that plunge men and women, for that matter, into ruin and destruction. Think about foolish things that people do when they try to get rich. Um, Multi-level marketing, right? Um, Join this company. You start at the ground floor, and if you work hard, you can be a millionaire, and you'll have all these people who will be making money for you. And the only people they make money on are you. (laughs) You have to buy all this product, and then it sits in your basement for 10 years. You do foolish things. Or like go into real estate, joining those real estate seminars on how to get rich in Vancouver or Toronto by flipping houses. And some people do okay at that. Some people do really well, but there's a lot of people who they just, they blow all their money on the seminar. There's people who are just making money on the seminars. There's things that can be harmful too. Not only do we do foolish things, we do harmful things. Things that are illegal. Things that put you in jail. And it can lead to ruin. It can lead to financial ruin. Uh, Money, friends, that sort of ruin. But it also can lead to destruction. Destruction of your soul. Gets eroded in all of it. Paul goes on to say this. He goes, so much so that he says that uh, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And this is an interesting saying because there's there's a popular version of this that says, Money 
is the root of all evil. And it's interesting because in Timothy, Paul's letter, he says the love of money, this desire, this craving to be rich, this love of money is a root, a significant root, but not maybe just the one, but a root of all kinds of evil. Not just capital E evil, but all kinds of evil. And he goes on to say that some, some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with grief. People have even gone beyond this and their lives are destroyed. It's interesting as I think about wealth and I think of people I know, even people in our congregation here, who are wealthy. And I see the way that they are generous, the way they've been generous with me, the way they've helped me, how humble they are, how kind they are how helpful. But I also know people, even people in my family, who their sole goal in life is to be rich. And at one time they had a powerful faith, a strong faith, and now that's just history to them in their pursuit to be rich and their craving for wealth. As I've been thinking about that this week, One that I wanted to say to you is that I am grateful for this church family. (coughs) As I was thinking about it, I was thinking about who in our church, who in our church needs to specifically hear this message about craving wealth. And you know, I couldn't really think of anybody. And I'm grateful for that. As I look out at you this morning, I don't see a bunch of people who are craving wealth. I don't see a bunch of people who are desiring to get rich. I think maybe we wrestle with comfort, with a desire to be comfort or a fear of being uncomfortable, especially as the years come. And we'll talk some more about that next week um, when we read the other part of this passage where Paul talks to the people, remind those who are wealthy in your congregation or in your church. And we'll talk about that next week. But I'm encouraged because I'm grateful that as I look out at you, that I don't see people who are climbing over one another trying to get rich. You know, many of you are past the get ridding, getting rich stage in your life. Many of you are retired. Most of you are retired. But I'm grateful that you aren't trying to get rich. But it's a good reminder for us, <laughs> just to be reminded that craving wealth is hazardous to our health. The wanting to get rich just leads to disaster. Paul talks about all these different ways that it leads to disaster. So what do we do in our culture that idolizes money, that berates us with this idea that you won't be happy until you're rich? What do we do? What do we, where do we get help? Well, before we get to that, I wanted to ask this question, what is wealth? How do you define wealth? Basic answer is money and stuff, right? That's what our culture tells us wealth is all the time. Being wealthy means you have lots of money or lots of stuff or lots of both. But says who? Do we just have to accept that idea that that's what wealth is? Why do we accept that? 
Why do we just go along with that definition? It's a social construct. It's something that our society tacitly and some people maybe aggressively agree on. That wealth is money and stuff. But I have this question. What if wealth is relative? What if wealth is something that we decide what it is? That it's not just the definition of things, that it's not some external idea, but it's something that we choose. Let me just show you what I mean. Who here, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, just answer in your head, who here thinks you're rich? Who here would call themselves, you know what, I'm rich? Generally speaking, most people say, not me, regardless of how much money you have. Most people say, I- I'm not rich. I, I'm, I'll, I'm comfortable and I'm really fortunate, but I'm not rich. Rich, we usually mean people by who are rich. We mean people who have way more than we do. That's the definition of rich. But you can see that's a sliding scale. <laughs> If our definition of rich or wealth is just people who have more than us, we will never be rich or wealthy. If it's just people who have more than us. We talked about earlier about this morning when we mentioned uh, Sudanese uh, people in Sudan who are going through famine. They would look at any one of us in this room and say that you my brothers and sisters, you are filthy rich. Maybe even some people in our church family will look at some of us, others in our church family, and say, you, you are rich. Whether you feel like it or not, you're rich. I was reading this book uh, that Bill lent me uh, called How to, How to Get Rich by Andy Stanley. And he was talking about that wealth is a moving target. This idea of being rich is a moving target. We never feel rich or, um, well, yeah. And even the people who have millions of dollars, even they, it's a pretty small percentage that feel rich. Most of them still feel empty, like they're still needing more. Equates to being rich is like chasing a rainbow. It's this horrible game. I don't know, maybe when you were kids, maybe some of you still do, uh, chase rainbows. And no matter how close you get, it just keeps moving, right? It looks like it's just, just another few meters ahead and then it just keeps moving further back. Chasing wealth is like that. Trying to get rich, chasing this idea, desiring to be rich is like that. You think you're there and it just keeps moving. They've done studies where people say, what is wealth? And just generally speaking, I mean, it's a little bit of difference, a little bit of variance here and there, but generally speaking, people think that wealth is double what they have. So, for example, if you make $30,000 a year, when you ask what's wealthy, they say 60 and above. That's wealthy, that's rich. If you make 60, you ask that same person when they make $60,000 a year. Now they say, well, you know, when I was younger, I wasn't quite right. 60,000, if rich is 120 and above, double what I make. It's just, it just keeps moving. The more you chase it, the further out it moves. 
Now, this is interesting for me because when we realize that our idea of wealth and what rich is, when we realize that it's, re- that it's relative, that it's subjective to us, one, that's really discouraging. On the one hand, it's discouraging because you begin to realize, I will never be rich. No matter how much money I have, no matter how many millions I have, I will never be rich. I will always think rich is more. So that's the first thing. That's sort of discouraging for a minute. The positive part of it is that if it's relative, we can choose it. If wealth is a relative concept, something that we can define, we can choose it. What if rather than chase wealth, we chose it? What if we chose to define wealth differently? It's interesting, I was looking up the definition of wealth, the abundance of valuable possessions. That's it. Valuable possessions. It doesn't say what those possessions are. Maybe even possession is, you know, I think you can expand that to more than just material stuff. It can mean all sorts of things. But if we're going to value things like money or gold or fancy cars, get ready for a race. That finish line keeps moving. And not only that, you're competing with 30 other million people from Canada for those things. That's what everybody's chasing. That's why they're so expensive. And if you're going to chase those things, you better put on your running shoes because you're going to be chasing for a while. But it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Wealth is arbitrary. Throughout history, different things have been a symbol of wealth. Shells, stones, certain types of stones, certain types of ores. Even bronze was pretty valuable at one point. Now, it's, you know, they make doorstops out of bronze. What about cattle? Cattle have been a symbol of wealth. Land. Land was a symbol of wealth. Even 200 years ago, beaver pelts were a symbol of wealth. They were a currency. Whale oil. A currency. I was trying to figure it out. <clears throat> um, um, I don't, uh, it's a really gruesome movie, but I watched it. It was The Revenant with um, um, Leonardo DiCaprio. And in the beginning, there's a scene where they are gathering beaver pelts. And they are talking about having to leave him. There's this one character, he will not leave it because he's like, This is my fortune. I will not leave it. And it's just beaver skins. And so I was looking it up. It made me think about beaver pelts. And uh, in those times, around the 1800s, it's hard to figure out exact values, but they're saying a beaver skin would go for the equivalent today of around $250, roughly, for one beaver pelt. So you can imagine, if you've got a stack of them, how, you know, how much money we're talking about here. And what you could buy with that much money then. It was like, Five cents for a house back then. Do you know what a beaver pelt sells for right now? 
15 bucks. <laughs> and beaver pelts were so expensive, mainly because they made top hats out of them for wealthy people. I mean, they use them for other things as well, but you just see how arbitrary it is. It makes no sense. And so if wealth is this arbitrary, what if we started consciously choosing what was valuable to us? Rather than chase it, choose it. What if we chose wealth for us was family? Our family around us, our church family. What if we chose that wealth was an abundance of valuable relationships? An abundance of valuable friends. An abundance of valuable, of a good name in our community. As someone who was humble and generous and honest. What if that was wealth to us? So what if we stopped looking for more? What if we stopped defining wealth as more and started defining wealth for ourselves as enough? having enough. I look at these boys. I, uh, I'm not sure exactly where this picture is taken. I'm guessing somewhere in Southeast Asia, let's say maybe India. If you can tell, I mean, you can look at it, you can see the woman sitting over there, that this is a slum. And you can see the hole in the boy's shirt here. Those shirts aren't new. But look at their faces. They don't look poor to me. This guy, he right here, he looks like the cat who ate the canary, right? That mischievous smile. Happiness, wealth, those things are more about our outlook than the stuff that we have. I mean, you, we know, we've seen the studies, people who have more and more, at a certain point, it doesn't add any more happiness to your life. And oftentimes, beyond a certain point, it starts to just add trouble and stress and strife. We look at wealth as just the money and the stuff because we let it. Because we let culture dictate to us what's valuable. In a world that where money and wealth is arbitrary, we don't have to take it for their word, take their word for it. We can redefine wealth, what wealth is for us. If we're redefining wealth, I say we use the words that Paul said. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Man, why have I not heard that before? <laughs> I'm thinking like that sounds so profound. And I don't know, maybe it's just one of those things where I'm studying this week and it strikes me. I finally, boom, catch it. Godliness with contentment is great gain. word for godliness is Eusebius. It's this devotion, this devotion to God, this relationship with Him. It affects our whole life. This is the foundation for everything. Our relationship with God affects everything. The way that we relate to others, the way we go about our work, the joy that we feel. And contentment is auto um, case, which is um, you're satisfied. This is enough. I know it sounds crazy, but if wealth is if wealth is relative, why don't we just choose godliness and contentment 
to define wealth for us. Think about this. You can be rich today. Regardless of what your bank account looks, you can be rich today if you'll choose godliness and contentment. Paul is clear. Don't chase the rainbows. Chase godliness and contentment. And I'm wondering, what if we took it one step further, one step further and went from contentment to gratitude? We've been talking some the last few weeks about gratefulness. Uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, we were working through Psalm, 14, or Psalm 40, Psalm 138, and reflecting on gratitude and how it changes our lives. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but God is working in me and changing my life because of gratitude. And I can't help but say that not just contentment, but grateful for what God has done. Let's just take a second and be grateful. Grateful for the homes that we came from or that we woke up in this morning. Who here woke up in a box this morning? Cardboard box. No. I woke up in a nice, comfy, queen bed, climate-controlled room. Fan. It was beautiful. Who here in the last week had to wash their clothes with a washboard and a bin or a basin? Except for you, you don't count because you had to be here camping. Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I was, uh, um, oh, Walter, you've mentioned it before when you were growing up, how amazing it was when your family got electricity and was able to buy a washer for your mom. How grateful we are. I don't know about these guys, I don't know where they live, but the Ganges River in India People wash their clothes there and do everything else in that river. It serves as washroom and uh, laundromat all at the same time. We wash, we throw our clothes in a machine and push a button and they're clean. Who here had to wake up early this morning, carry buckets out to the pump, fill them up and fill the cistern up so you had water for today? I just walked over to the sink, turned on the tap. Beautiful, cold, clean, refreshing water came out. I'm grateful for that. How many of us, I'm afraid to ask this one, but you can't answer because I know you might. Who here, no, last night I do know. Last night, who here had to wake up when you woke up in the middle of the night and you had to use the washroom, which happens as we get older? who had to put on their jacket and their shoes and go to the outhouse. At most, at most, we had to walk down the hall and use the washroom. When it got dark last night, (laughs) as we get older too, this is maybe not a great question, but as it got dark last night, who here just turned on the light? Who here had to light a candle or somehow light the room some other way? None of us. We just turned on the light. As I get older, I go to bed earlier and earlier, I realize that. But So the light isn't as big a deal. But in the winter, it is a big deal. When we are sick, when we get diagnosed with the flu or a broken leg or cancer, Who here worries about how we're going to pay for the medical bill? I'm grateful for that. 
We have brothers and sisters who live in other parts of the world. When their children get sick with a curable disease, it takes a shot, but they can't afford it. Their hearts break. Think about this. Be grateful. I'm grateful for the food that we have. I mean, it is still like coming right into the height of harvest, you know, with fruits and stuff like that. But in the middle of January, when the snow is this deep, I can go to the store and buy greens. I can buy lettuce and spinach. I want to. I can buy ahi tuna at the grocery store even though I live a day's flight from the ocean. Most of us don't have a problem with trying to find food to eat. Most of us have a problem with eating too much. We have so much to be grateful for, let alone our families, our loved ones, our friends, and Jesus himself that he came, that he died, that he rose again, that we have new life and forgiveness. We have so much to be grateful for. If wealth really is relative, if we can choose it, we can be rich today. If we stop chasing it and start choosing what it means for us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Imagine if we as a church stopped accepting what our culture crammed down our throat and chose this, godliness with contentment. And those times when we began to feel envy for what other people had, those times when we began to feel resentment that people had more than us, all those times when we began to feel fear that maybe I don't have enough and I need to hoard more for myself, that we were content. Better yet, we were grateful. We gave God thanks and praise for what he'd done. Let us redefine wealth. Let us no longer just accept the idea that wealth is money and stuff. Let us use our wealth. Let us wield our wealth well. Let us stop chasing it and choose it. Godliness with contentment. This is great game. Amen.